Chapter Eleven of A Vanished Hand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. A Vanished Hand by Sarah Dowdney. Chapter Eleven. Mrs. Verdon. We know too much of love ere we love. We can trace nothing new, unexpected, or strange in his face when we see it at last. Tis the same little Cupid, with the same dimpled cheek, and the smile almost stupid. We have seen in our pictures and stuck on our shelves, and copied, a hundred times over, ourselves. Owen Meredith Mrs. Verdon held an untrammelled position in life. She was a rich young widow, uncontrolled, and without children. The death of her little boy had been a greater sorrow than the death of her husband, who was much older than herself. Catherine Verdon had adored her child. It was Jamie's resemblance to her lost darling which had drawn her so strongly towards him. She had been a widow five years, and was in no haste to marry again. Like Queen Elizabeth, she coquetted with her suitors, but these coquetries were of a harmless kind, and never went far enough to set the world talking. She had a great deal of tact and cleverness, and managed all her affairs with graceful dexterity. She was not really beautiful, but in a woman so fortunately situated, a little beauty is made much of. Her figure, tall and slender, had the flexible grace of ribbon-grass, her little head, regally poised, was almost overweighted with thick braids of satiny hair of pale gold. Small features, delicate if irregular, a colourless fair skin and pale blue eyes completed this face, which never had a warm tint. Her dress was costly, but always well chosen, and she had so carefully studied herself that she could not put on anything which did not become her. On that summer evening at Richmond, she was at her best. Deliverance from great peril had opened her heart to all good influences. The fear of losing Jamie was set at rest, and it was a fear which had increased as the child grew dearer. She was genial, responsive, full of gentle gaiety and genuine gratitude. For a whole year, Arnold Wayne had listened to the praises of Catherine Verdon, chanted by his cousins, the Danforths. They had found fault with him, as all his relations did, for leading an unsettled life, and were always asking when he was going to marry. He had been travelling for three or four years, associating with all sorts and conditions of men and women, interesting himself in strange religions, penetrating into regions which few Englishmen had ever visited, and he had reached the mature age of thirty-three without having been very deeply and seriously in love. Of course, he had had love affairs. There was an Italian who had held him in her enchantments for a whole winter, not to mention a gitana whose liquid eyes had kept him spellbound under the walls of the Alhambra and others, fair and dark, tall and little, who had been, 
the summer pilots of an empty heart unto the shores of nothing but as he had owned to his innermost self a hundred times the woman who was to reign over his life had not yet come would she ever come he had asked himself this question on the day when he had seen elsie with the rector certainly there had been a strange attraction in her face it was beautiful but he had seen beauties by the score beauties of all lands and of all grades high and low it was not elsie's beauty which had so strongly moved him although it was of a type which he especially admired it was an expression a something that was wistful and tender in the eyes a look as of one who was waiting before the fast shut door of paradise in time the face might have passed out of his memory but it flashed upon him again at richmond and he had a prophetic feeling that his fate had come to him at last the boy jamie as he saw at once would be the connecting link between elsie and himself it would be perfectly right in him to call on one who had taken so warm an interest in the nephew of his intimate friend then too there had been something said about miss neale's manuscript in which his name was mentioned he felt that he ought to examine the manuscript and carry out as far as he could the wishes of the writer these were the thoughts which came crowding into his mind during the drive home from richmond meanwhile mrs verdon was talking to him in silvery tones and asking with pleasant friendliness whether he had made any plans for the autumn jamie rosy and sleepy gave him an indolent smile now and then it was a curious thing he reflected that the child should link him to mrs verdon as well as to miss kilner and then he smiled to himself remembering all that the danforths had said in this fair widow's praise her carriage set him down in a convenient spot and he walked away to his chambers in piccadilly pondering over the strange adventures of the day mrs verdon although she loved liberty was not unprotected and her late husband's sister a mrs tell had lived with her all through the years of her widowhood mrs tell too was a rich widow tall and of imposing aspect but easy-tempered and rather lazy she was past sixty and looked a majestic matron with her white hair and lace cap Catherine's whims did not annoy her in the least and she had taken quite kindly to jamie in her inmost heart she did not want her sister-in-law to marry again and the boy she thought would fill up the void in her life and help to make her contented with her lot mrs verdon had a good deal of pleasure in her large house she found her pictures chairs tables plaques and hangings quite absorbing sometimes many a morning was spent in arranging and rearranging cabinets and mantels and trying the effect of new draperies and mrs tell enjoyed anything that made the time pass tranquilly away the carriage stopped at the door in portman square sleepy jamie went toiling up the wide staircase in the dusk 
and Mrs. Verdon slowly followed. Everything looked rich and dim. The plants in the great Indian jars filled the hall with sweet scents. Flowers were blooming in every nook. Through a half-drawn portiere there was a glimpse of Mrs. Tell reading in the shaded lamplight. A motherly woman met Jamie on the landing and gave him a loving greeting. She had been nurse to Mrs. Verdon's own child. "'Ready for bed?' she said in her cheery voice. "'What pretty dreams you'll have to-night!' Horses ran away, Jamie began, opening his blue eyes. "'Went faster than my rocking horse! Dreadful! Don't want to go out in the garage any more.' "'Never mind,' said Nurse, with a little hug. "'We won't talk about runaway horses at bedtime. "'We'll just shut our eyes and think of a field of yellow corn, "'waving, waving, waving.' Elsie had often been troubled with sad visions of Jamie at night. She had pictured him sleeping in rags under an arch "'or in some corner of a grimy garret.' but Fancy had never shown her anything like the dainty little white bed in this spacious room. Gaily coloured prints decorated the walls, and on a bracket just above the boy's pillow stood a lovely statuette of an angel with folded wings and down-bent gracious face. When any visitor came up to see the night nursery, Jamie would point at once to the figure and say proudly, "'My guardian angel!' An hour or two later, when Jamie, rosy and beautiful, was wrapped in the deep, sweet sleep of childhood, Mrs. Verdon and her sister-in-law were sitting together after dinner. "'What an eventful day you have had!' said Mrs. Tell, looking up from her knitting in the softly shaded light. "'And what a romantic meeting with Mr. Wayne! Is he all that the Danforths described?' "'Of course not!' replied Mrs. Verdon. They described one of the impossible heroes of fiction. You know, they have a talent for description. But isn't he nice? Mrs. Tell asked. Yes, he is nice. There is something about him that is not commonplace. She leaned back in her chair with a half-smile, absently toying with a sprig of lemon plant. Her slender figure looked graceful, in a gown of some soft kind of silk, flowered with faint blue and pink. Looking at her, you somehow imbibed the notion that her hair, eyes, complexion, and dress corresponded with her character. She was faintly coloured. Nothing about her was intense. A vague thought of this kind flitted through Mrs. Tell's brain at this moment. She was not a clever woman, but long intercourse with the world had quickened her faculty for observation, and she was much given to studying Catherine. "'Not commonplace,' she repeated. "'Then, of course, you found him very interesting?' "'There was not time to get interested in him,' Mrs. Verdon answered. "'Naturally, if a man saves one's life, one feels grateful. Perhaps my gratitude has invested him with a fictitious charm.' She spoke with a little mocking air, twisting the sprig of lemon plant in her long white fingers, and looking down meditatively at the carpet. "'He will follow up his advantage,' remarked Mrs. Tell, knitting steadily. 
No man ever had a more favourable introduction. I wonder if he knew whose carriage it was when he stopped the horses. It was very well done. Of course, a man who has travelled for years and gone into all sorts of risky places is always ready for an emergency. He will call soon. He will call soon, echoed the younger widow, still with a little touch of mockery in her tone, and I shall ask him to dinner. And then, Olivia, you will sit there in your pet chair and watch us both over your knitting pins. When men come here, you always remind me of Madame Defarge and the dreadful knitting women of the French Revolution. You have knitted all my admirers into that coverlet you are making. It's a sort of secret record, I do believe. She rose with a slight laugh, suppressed a yawn in saying good-night, and went out of the room with a soft rustle of trailing draperies, leaving Mrs. Tell sitting in the pet chair. End of chapter 11